The Right Hook Podcast. With the Mitsubishi Commercial Range, Pajero Executive, Pajero Commercial, Outlander Business and new L200. All with a leading five-year commercial warranty. MitsubishiMotors.ie well, the week on the Right Hook here at Newstalk is coming to an end with me, George Hook, and we've got some of the outstanding items of today's show that you can listen to just in case you miss them. Um, the issue of death of Joe Cox is uh, awful, but um, Shane Coleman, our Newstalk's uh, political editor, is with me in the studio. You have some thoughts in an Irish context. Yeah, I, I do, because, look, it's far too early, I think, to start jumping to conclusions about motivations and so on behind this horrific killing. But I think it should give us pause for thought, because, and this is... I mean, I think a lot of people would have thought this anyway before this horrendous, horrendous event. But I think there is an ugliness about political discourse today. There is a a deeply unpleasant atmosphere around much of, around much of what passes for political debate. And political debate must be robust. That's really important. But it, too often, I think, particularly in social media, um, when you have anonymous contributors, I think too often that has spilled into bile, into hatred, into nastiness. And I think there's an ugliness around at the moment towards politics, towards politicians. I think they're seen as op- uh, it's open season on them. Uh, I think they're dehumanised. I think people think they're almost, you know, they're this elite class who are out to yeah. stiff us and, and line their own pockets. And I think that is now, I am not saying, and I, I want to stress this, I'm not saying that you know people who write nasty things on social media have any intention of acting on any of that stuff or, or even will necessarily cause other people to do wrong. But I think it adds in to, uh, it unleashes potentially dangerous yeah, forces. Yeah, but you see... I, I'm uh, I'm getting a lot of uh, abuse on Twitter that it's, it's sort of my fault and people like me uh, because I, I have an anti-immigration stance, right? And therefore, because I'm xenophobic, uh, uh, this causes this kind of problem. Now, the first thing is, I, I think that uh, the tragedy it leads is quite different from the tragedy in Paris where the policeman and his wife were stabbed in front of their three-year-old child by an Islamist um, and obviously Orlando. What I think is the real worry is not since the Civil War when we, we saw members of Dáil Éireann murdered, yeah. right? Not since the Civil War has an Irish... And I'd widen it from from necessarily a politician to to uh, any well known figure. Not then since then have we really seen tax on people. So therefore, we are we have this thing at programs over at seven o'clock. I'm pretty confident about walking out the front door and going home. Uh, politicians are pretty happy walking out all earn and strolling home or whatever happens to be. We have a, we have a great and long may it continue, but you worry about it now, that you have this sense of absolute safety. Yeah, and if you talk to politicians privately, they won't say it publicly, every single one of them in the last few years, has encountered aggression, threats, in some cases, 
violence. Now, they're well, very we did reluctant see, to talk about it. We did, like, I had an elected representative in the studio who said uh, it's okay to harass politicians. <sighs> Yeah, uh, I, this was in the case of where, if you remember, Alan Shatter uh, wasn't able to get in or get out. I forget, get in or get out, Dolairn or whatever, yeah. right? And and that, in other words, the, the sense now is, and and I I I think we're more likely in that regard than the British are. The British have tended, it may, your point, it may well be changing, but, but respect for politicians in Britain has by and large been much greater than us. It has. And I think, I mean, I think it goes to the issue of respect. I have huge respect for anyone who stands for office. Irrespective and, and, of, of, yeah, of, of and, yeah. and puts themselves out there. Now, you know, that doesn't mean they shouldn't be scrutinised. That shouldn't mean they shouldn't be criticised. That doesn't mean they're not accountable. But in the main... I think politicians of all political parties and, and non-parties are decent human beings trying to do their best, trying to help people. Now, do they make mistakes? Of course they do. Do they fall short of their ideals? Do they have to make compromises? Of course they do. But there is a there is a cynicism towards politics and even this, you know, and, and I, you know, I get accused that you're part of the, the cabal, you're part of the political no, but you see, I think you're They're slightly, representatives yeah. of us. But I, I think you're slightly too narrow in that you think the only people, therefore, um, are politicians. I think in general, what worries me is the whole idea that we've, ac- we've accepted for a hundred years that it was perfectly okay to walk our streets. Like we see CCD coverage of ordinary people walking down O'Connell Street and a fella comes up behind him and hits him with a bottle or whatever it happens to be. You only in the last 24 hours talked about walking to your home from here and witnessing antisocial behaviour, watching drug dealing, watching disorder. So what we are seeing is a diminution of the actual personal safety of the person. I think think there is undoubtedly true to that. I think we have become more aggressive as a society. I think we have become coarser as a society. Um, I I think it's particularly noticeable in relation to politicians and just a lack of respect people have for politicians. And, you know, we we are here, they're corrupt, they're all the same. You know, I, I... you know what? And I think it's actually time for people who believe in politics and believe in politicians and, you know, without, you know, without looking at them through rose-tinted glasses and without saying they're perfect and they're clearly not, but actually standing up and saying, you know what, I, I'm not, I'm not, but I'm the, not going to buy that line No, but anymore. the last general election actually proved that uh, the sort of view of politicians is lower than it might have been because when you get um, a, a complete inability to form a government as we understand governments normally to have been formed, then there's something actually wrong with the system. Yeah, there and, is. And, and therefore what you have is, and, and the problem where you talk about cynicism or a criticism or lack of respect, you actually talk about 
old fashioned, not old fashioned in the best sense, parties and and politicians who come from the establishment. Yeah, uh, you know. But even that the, term, the establishment. I, mean, I know the establishment. I'm sure I haven't got a dictionary in front of me, but I don't think the word establishment would necessarily uh, be be construed as uh, difficult uh, in. Uh, See, I think it is. I think it's seen as a term of abuse. I, I missed I, apparently Senator Billy Fox in um, the 1970s. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but that was the IRA, yeah, was wasn't that, it? I, I think that, that uh, while no less reprehensible, that is that is different. And what, I, what yes. I'm... I think a lot of it is generated by on social media where you have people with the benefit of anonymity passing comments you know everything is fair game you can go as far as you like you can criticize people's appearance you can i mean we had a a ludicrous example uh, of a politician a newly elected politician to the current doll uh, being hammered on social media, nasty uh, stuff about his haircut. Now, okay, that obviously is not going to spill over into something else, but it goes to the okay. kind of culture. Well, let me and the give you an example. Let me there. give an example of what you're talking about. Right, text comes in. Now, uh, he, it's not very. He, He's not very uh, complimentary to you, but that doesn't matter. But what he then says, the final sentence, see what this shower of traitors has done to us all. In other words, politicians. Yeah. See, well, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, that's exactly what you're talking about. Who is it? Although another listener doesn't fancy your beatification about it. See, I'm not. This is what drives me mad. I am not beatifying anybody I am not saying they are without flaws I'm not saying they don't they, they don't make mistakes they clearly do I'm saying before we criticise them look in the mirror all of us fall short of our ideals all of us make mistakes they put themselves up for election they have to go up and renew their mandate every couple of years every four or five years at most if you don't like them vote them out or vote something better I, I just I'm sorry I do not accept that the people we elect are not representatives of us uh, for on reflections of us for better for worse and the idea that they're somehow different from the rest of us I'm sorry yeah, I don't but, buy but it but you see the other thing is um, I remember like the first time I ever saw Charlie Hawhey I didn't see him like in a political centre I saw him walking up Dawson Street you know and uh, and and that happens all the time when we interview politicians here they walk over from Dolan now now what is increasingly worrying in the world we uh, live in is that that freedom of movement which we think is so important is being challenged yeah. It is, and I mean, look. And uh, if it it starts with politicians, but if people think it's okay, then it moves on. Then you only have yeah. to say. And I mean, look, I, I knew coming on here that there would be those kind of texts, you yeah. know, that says you you're defending these people. They're tra- I mean, I'm sorry, that's just nonsense. You know, they're they're not. They're elected representatives who have made mistakes, who've done some good, some bad. But let's debate the issues uh, and let's play, I suppose, play the play the ball rather than the man. And I think there's too much of playing the ball at the moment. And you know what, George? Even texts like people saying, you know, you're responsible and people like you are responsible for what has happened in the UK. That's part of that nonsense, 
as well and that's part of the oh, well I don't need thanks for defending me but um, the, the thing is like when a fella says to me like that how do I how do I uh, uh, match my Christianity uh, with my xenophobia uh, uh, with no text I just got well now, look, I, I do have to say um, you know I think you so, think it's unchristian no, no, to no, have a migration no, I, policy no I don't okay. I, I do think though there are I mean, politicians, and Trump is the obvious one, who thrive on that atmosphere. I mean, when 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 he says something at a meeting like, you know, I want to hit that guy a slap in the gob or whatever, I'm sorry, that is also yeah. playing to those forces well, as well, when Churchill, when Churchill said, you know, never was so much owed by so many to so few, he was jumping on the bandwagon and the RAF had just beaten the, the Luftwaffe in the air. I mean... So you, can, you cannot compare... No, you can't compare Trump his comments about the Nazi regime to some protester at a meeting of his, who probably unwisely is there. You just cannot compare uh, the two, George. And I think those politicians. I'd coming on I, you. I, I do think those politicians who try and play with those for uh, those forces that we've spoken about are certainly part of the problem. And I think they, in particular, have to be careful about what they're doing. All right, Shane Coleman, Newstalk's political editor. I have to say, I probably wasn't fair to Shane. There are a ton of uh, really supportive texts for for his view. The right hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander seven seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for. Super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. Mitsubishi Motors.ie. Now, the fifth annual National Counseling and, and uh, Psychotherapy Conference is taking place in the Gibson Hotel tomorrow. My guest has travelled all the way from Southern California, who's going to be talking about sexual uh, issues, but particularly about old age, of course. I'm deeply interested in that topic, needless to mention. So Dr. Stephanie Bueller very kindly dropped in to talk to me. Dr. Bueller, welcome to the program. Thank you so very much for having me. Now, you're an expert in this field because you're a certified sex therapist, um, but you're also a psychologist. Um, the the question of old age. I, I'm I'm a keen film man, and I think I remember when I saw that Rod Steiger had a baby at eighty two. Um, I didn't have one, but you know what I mean. Uh, I was very impressed. But it is a fact of life. As people get older, they get less and less interested in sex. Well, that's true to an extent. What the research tells us is that as long as someone has their relative health and they have a partner, they're still interested in sex. Most older people are wanting to, even if they're widowed or they're divorced, they want to date and they want a partner. Yeah, I agree. It, the word interest, like that, I mean, I'm interested. It's in my head all the time. But because I suffer from erectile dysfunction, then clearly... I, it's no go. Right, that's right. So the the mind may be willing, but the body may need some yeah. help. That's true. But I think what happens, and what I try to educate my clients about, is that you can have sex in all different kinds of ways. You don't have to have intercourse. You can do lots of other things. Well, can you? All right. Okay, let's move swiftly on. But for instance, though, it, it doesn't matter actually whether the, the couple are in their 20s or in their 60s. Unless you're extremely lucky, both people have 
different sort of views, ideas, or more important appetites. Isn't that so, irrespective of age? That is a very common problem. And why some people seem to be able to work it out and others end up in my office talking about the fact that he's interested four times a week and she's interested once a week and they can't seem to come to an agreement. And they need somebody from the outside to figure out that they have to maybe do it twice a week. I don't. <laughs> so that's your job. <laughs> yes, that's my job. All right. But <laughs> if we go back um, to, because I am beyond help, okay? So it, it, this isn't about me, but this is about older people because I was a spokesperson for erectile dysfunction at one point. And therefore, of course, for many men, there are now, there are now medical help in the shape of pills that, that can help them. But again, talking about the people to come into your office, Hasn't the advent of these pills now created these sort of sexual athletes aged 65, 70 men, but their wives aged 65 or 70 don't necessarily share this thing as they're compounding up the stairs seven nights a week? I mean, isn't surely that must present at a point in some relationship where there's a kind of calming down, slowing down, suddenly this guy thinks he's 35 again. Well, that can be a big problem. Uh, truly, what can happen is one person pulls the plug on the sex life and the other one isn't very happy about it. They do have to figure that out. Now, sometimes if both partners say, well, we're done, that's not really a problem. But it's sometimes the man who pulls the plug. Yes, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. And so in that case, we have to have a discussion about why that is. Now, you, you've flown all the way from Southern California to speak at the conference tomorrow. What are you re- going to talk about? What's the keynote part of the speech, really? So I'm going to be talking about sexuality and aging, but I'm also going to talk about what every mental health professional needs to know about sex, which is the title of a textbook that I wrote. And uh, in that case, I'm going to talk to therapists about how important it is to talk to their clients about these issues. Yeah, you would have uh, thought, uh, my guest is Dr. Stephanie Bueller from uh, California, who's in the Gibson Hotel tomorrow um, at a conference for psychologists and psychotherapists. But the, the, the thing here is that, like, if you kind of go to your GP, for argument's sake, your general practitioner, like, he's great if you go to him with hemorrhoids or a pain in your head or so and so. But, like, if you actually said to him, hey, doc, like, I've got a problem in in a sexual area, he's probably completely lost. He may be completely lost. That is so true because they don't, you know, the GPs, actually all doctors, they get very, very, very little sexual medicine training or yes. anything, any any psychology at all. And they don't have time. That's the thing, too. So even if they knew, talking about sexual issues can be very complex. And that's... Uh, yeah. At least a 15-minute conversation, 20 minutes, and no doctor has that kind of time. But you're here on Irish radio, of course, and uh, I would suggest that, like, because the Americans are obsessed with sex, there's probably tons of radio programs, you know, with people like you on them, whereas we're even the new generation are much more reticent about it. I can imagine my son and two daughters, if they're listening to the program, they're saying, oh, dad, you know what I mean? 
Yeah, I do. It's true that sometimes younger people are shyer about talking about sex than older people. Well, they've had less experience with it too. Yes, but 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 all the te- people listening are getting uncomfortable. All right, they're they're uh, why somebody says um, why don't I take testosterone? That'll kick back into my hormones, says James in Limerick. Um, but a lot of people are feeling very sick about an old guy like me talking about sex. Well, there shouldn't be any shame in talking about sexual interest. I mean, if it's something that you're still interested in, no one should judge you for that. It's really about love, not just about sex. Now, here's the interesting one, love and sex. A recent survey has said that one in four kids under the age of 11 are looking at pornography, all right? And that by the time they reach 16, 50% are looking at pornography. Now, isn't that creating a generation who will see sex in the same way as they see football or pole vaulting, that it's an athletic event, and there is nothing that is teaching them the love part of it? I, that is such a good point. I think that there's a real shame that younger people don't get a good sex education. They don't get it from their parents often. They don't get it at school. They're learning from the internet, and that's a terrible place to learn about sex because you aren't learning anything about love or relationships. Because, I mean, it's interesting when you said to me that uh, for for people, men with erectile dysfunction, there are other things. The interesting thing that happens as you get older, and I'm sure you, you come across this, is that if you're in love, if you're if you're in love with your partner, like I find the smell of my wife's hair incredibly exciting. <laughs> I know maybe it's shampoo she uses, maybe she should sell it. But the idea of holding somebody or kissing somebody or it's not actually about necessarily for older people because they understand love and, and physical contact better than young people do. That's true also. I know that a lot of times when I talk to men about erectile dysfunction, what they really need is more affection. And if they can understand that and get past their macho beliefs about sex, talk to their partner about what they really need, which is foreplay, affection, kissing, hugging, things go much better for them. But I don't know what the woman was who invented Cosmopolitan, but like, isn't Cosmopolitan, and to a degree you and and your colleagues in the industry, like, you've created a thing that all the old age pensioners listening to the program now think, bloody hell, I should be on the job according to Dr. Buller. Isn't there a danger that you're giving older people an excessive, um, not so much desire, but an excessive appreciation of what should be happening in their lives. I think that, I think that uh, people need to do what feels right to them. And if they want to stay sexually active, great. But you're so right that if it isn't for you any longer, if it's too much of a pain in the took us to do whatever, then it's time to stop, and that's fine. I've I've actually swapped it for pitching over bunkers. I I now get all my excitement from pitching over bunkers.
If I can get it within six feet of the pin, you have no idea how I feel. Oh, that must be a wonderful thing. <laughs> <laughs> you might incorporate it in your speech tomorrow. Thank you so much for coming in. You've Thank been, you so much for having been, me on. You've been a breath of fresh air. And um, there is a there is a saint. The text messages go mad. But my favorite saint is a fellow called St. Anthony of Padua who finds lost things. But, but his relic was here, 800 years old, on Monday. That might help me, a listener says. Uh, yes, I think so. <laughs> Dr. Stephanie Burler. She is in the Gibson Hotel tomorrow at the fifth annual National Counseling and Psychotherapy Conference. And that's, of course, here in Dublin, the Gibson Hotel. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander seven seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie now, the Oireachtas Housing Committee has published its report. I'm delighted to welcome uh, to the studio Sinn Féin spokesperson on housing, Owen O'Brien. He also, of course, is TD for Dublin Midwest. Uh, now, uh, Deputy O'Brien. Yes, George. Is this a report or have we got a few answers? Uh, I think it's a very good report and I think it has a, a range of recommendations that if the government takes seriously could make a real difference, some of them very quickly. There's about 109 recommendations, but there are 23 priority recommendations at the start of the report and they're the ones we really want the minister to focus on. So, for example, things that could be done straight away to stop people becoming homeless. We want a moratorium on evictions uh, until the government has its new mortgage resolution process up and running. That's a commitment they have in the programme for government. So we want no more evictions of homes until that takes place. Uh, for people in the private rental sector facing spiralling rents and again at risk of homelessness, uh, two actions we're recommending. The first is for those in receipt of rent supplement or the housing assistance payment, bring those payments into line uh, with market rents, but also introduce rent certainty, linking rents to an index such as the Consumer okay. Price Index. Uh, let's, uh, do you mind if I stay with that rent thing, yeah. right? Because the, the first one, uh, do you agree with the Waterford TD and Junior Minister in Government, John Halligan, who suggests landlords should be jailed because they are at the root of the homelessness problem. Well, first of all, landlords aren't at the root. Government policy, in my view, is, is the real problem. Look, I live in the private rental sector uh, and I want to live there and I think the majority of landlords out there are good, decent people. Some of them don't really know what they're doing, but they're not bad people. Uh, but the, the real problem in our private rental sector, it's badly regulated. Are there some rogue landlords uh, who should face criminal prosecutions? Yes, there are, as there are in any industry. But the bulk aren't. Our problem is the sector has been very, very badly regulated and as a result, okay. both for landlords and for tenants, the system isn't for purpose. And again, the report uh, we've published today has some recommendations for the more medium to longer term regulation okay, of yeah. the industry. I, I mean, the, just staying with that rent thing, because um, the, the government, well, the previous one, and that's not to say this one might be different, but the previous one, for good, I think, economic reasons, but uh, which I disagree with, but nevertheless, they made, they made sense in their eyes, was if we increase the supplement to market value, we just drive up rents anyway. 
And they're not wrong in that if that's the only thing you do. But if you uh, bring uh, rent supplement and housing assistance payments in line with market rents in parallel with introducing rent certainty, which limits the amount of increases or decreases that can happen, those two things balance each other out and you would uh, prevent uh, a dramatic hike up. Can you, as a, as a, uh, a politician, elected politician, can you see the mechanism, is the mechanism there? Yes. To, it is. It is, of course. So we can do it fairly of course, and look, we, we had constitutional experts, uh, legal experts who came in and talked about the constitutionality of some of these things. So there is a problem if you introduce rent controls where you, yeah. where you cap rents. There's, there's clearly a constitutional issue there. But if you introduce rent certainty, which is simply linking rent reviews to an index like the Consumer Price Index, it allows rents to go up or to go down, but in a more controlled way. So that allows landlords, for example, to make a reasonable profit, but it also gives tenants reasonable security of rent. And that's a much more sensible measure. And again, that's why we recommended it in the report. Okay, but one of the problems with property, it seems to me, is that a house, like if it were a motor car, if your motor car went up at the pace that your house is going up, or with your landlord, like if you're a landlord, this house that you've invested in, if your car was going up, you'd sell your car for more money. So in the case of a house that is going up in value... Isn't the investor, i.e. the landlord, always going to be looking for an equal return from an increasing asset, no? Yeah, it's not the, a difficult one to It is, to but, make. but and, it, and maybe this takes us <coughs> onto some of the other recommendations yes, of the report, yeah. but part of the problem with the private rental sector is, in many cases, the wrong people are living in the private rental sector. So, for example, there are about 25,000 students who should be living in standalone student accommodation but have been forced into the private yeah. rental sector. And as a result, those homes, of course, can't be used for first-time buyers or for professional renters. In the same way, we've about eighty to 90,000 households who are living in the private rental sector subsidised by the state through three different schemes. Many of those families should be living in council or housing association housing. So, in fact, one of the medium-term solutions to the crisis of rents in the private rental sector is actually getting a lot of those households out of the private rental sector into student accommodation uh, or social housing. And, for example, one of the most important recommendations we've made today is the state needs to increase the stock of social housing directly owned by local authorities or housing associations to the order of 10,000 units a year for five years. Last year, they increased it by about 2,000. This year, it's probably going to be about three. We need 10,000 additional social housing units a year every year for at least the next five years. But every... uh government and and local councils up to the time Jack Lynch uh, appallingly uh, got rid of rates we built houses like so <laughs> social housing wasn't difficult whether it no. was Ballyfehan in Cork or uh, like name any urban city you like in Ireland they all had social housing and then we stopped building it now the only problem for this that we must build social housing is You can't get them tomorrow. So, first of all, you don't need to just build. There are vacant houses, either disused houses or vacant houses out there that can be bought and some refurbished. So, again, what the committee has said is if you want to provide, on average, 10,000 units a year over five years, in your early years, there will be more acquisitions and refurbishments uh, of stock that you bring in. Keep in mind, the housing agency has told us approximately uh, 230,000 vacant properties out there, not including holiday homes. Some of those need to be brought in. But what you also need to do is this. It takes, on average, 18 months to get a council house built uh, from when the council decides to 
do it to when the key is turned. That's insane. And again, very, very strong recommendations in the report. We want the planning, the approval, the procurement and the tendering process dramatically reduced so that when a local authority decides it wants units, it can produce those units far, far quicker. And that is possible to do if the political will is there to change the rules. On this question of producing it quicker... I, I mean, I'm blue in the face, but because it's a hot button for me. And that doesn't mean it's right. It just means it's a hot button for me. The last government talked about modular housing or prefab, which is a bad word, but modular prefab housing. And they said, look, we can have this up in six weeks or whatever the heck it is. Well, if you want accommodation in a hurry, why aren't we putting housing that only takes six weeks or whatever it is to the, go up? Why the, do we do it? The real issue here is, and we listen to a lot of expert testimony on precisely yeah. these issues, the problem is not the build period. You can actually assemble a, a rapid build house around about the same time as you can build a good quality house. What drags the process on so long is the approval, procurement and tendering process insisted on by the Department of Environment and the Department of Public Expenditure and Reform. It takes 135 weeks just to get the approval, procurement and tendering. It is crackers, particularly in the context of a housing crisis. Well, sorry, so on you, that have, though, to, you okay. have to shorten all of that down. Correct. That's, that's even before you start to build. But every person listening sees the common sense of that, right? And, and gets it. But what about then where like for instance in in, in, in Alan Kelly um, he he reduced the the requirements for building houses down the country for instance so therefore there might well be safety issues down the track because you didn't have to do certain things and here's another worry here's the point there is no reason why you can't shorten the process while ensuring that building standards and safety standards okay. and consultation with the local community aren't built in there as well. They can all be done in a much shorter time frame. But again, I go back to the point, if you're going to produce the 10,000 units a year, even while we're shortening some of that, you are going to need to buy and bring back into use units that are currently not being used. But in my own constituency, I could take you to scores of houses that are lying vacant, that banks either aren't currently selling or developers didn't finish. So what we should you do with those, make them an offer they can't refuse, sell the houses to the council or we'll come in with a compulsory purchase order and we'll take them off them at a reasonable right. uh, compensation. The reason the banks like there's one thing where it's unfinished by a developer is not bust or whatever but the reason one assumes why the bank won't sell them is the bank is looking at a rising market and the bank is saying well, will you hang on here and it'll be worth more in and, six months. And the political decision government has to make is which is more important now, getting the 2,000 children who'll night sleep in emergency accommodation yeah. into a home or allowing a bank to make an extra 10 or 20 grand on the sale of a house in a couple of months rather than now which is why they already have the powers to do this South Dublin County Council has started using CPOs to bring some of those properties back right. into stock but if we've had a doubling of homelessness if there are 4,000 adults and 2,000 children then let's get them out of the hostels because keep in mind to keep that family in the hotel here in the city centre what's it costing the state a year? 36,000 euros but it makes no I, I human think, sense yeah. or financial Sense. I was going up to Armagh with Ingrid. Ingrid was giving a lecture. And we stopped on the way at a hotel north of the airport. We don't have to identify it, but north of the airport. And we're having breakfast. And next minute, these three kids come in in school uniforms. And they come in with them. Then another couple of kids come in with, with their mothers in school uniforms. And I didn't twig it initially. Right? And do you know how, how long that family 
on average will be staying in that type of accommodation at the moment. In Dublin City, the average length of time a homeless family is spending in hotel accommodation is two years. In South Dublin County Council, it's about a year at the moment. That's the scale of the family homelessness crisis that's there. But it's also important to remember there are other groups of people, what we often call the more traditional homeless, that we can't lose sight of either. And we need to ensure that that those people are also properly accommodated. But my guest on the programme is Sinn Féin spokesperson on housing. He happens to be TD for Dublin Midwest to own or brain and um, the, the, the uh, <laughs> I love this one I think you might even like this deputy it's a text from Mo is that guy really from Sinn Féin can't be he's reasonable and talking sense <laughs> if, people listen, like if people listen to us a little bit more uh, more often they'd realise we're very reasonable and talk sense a lot of the time uh, alright the whole way would you would you call the current homeless situation a crisis? Absolutely. We have the highest okay. right, the highest level of homelessness and child homelessness and families at risk of homelessness in the history of, of the modern state. Fine. So why are we not dealing with it like a crisis? Well, I think there are two problems. The first is, and it goes back to the point that you made before, which is in the 50s and the 70s, the state had a history of providing housing for people who needed it. What happened in the mid to late 80s is the state changed its mind. And it was of the view that the state shouldn't be a lead player in providing houses to meet the needs of those people for whom the market doesn't serve. And everything since then has been a series of kind of private sector incentivized schemes to get the private sector to look after that. And it doesn't work. The reason why you need public housing is because there's a large section of people might even be as much as 30% of the population who needs some kind of of publicly provided or publicly supported housing. So if if you have 25 years, 30 years of that approach, the crisis builds and builds and builds. And anybody who thinks this is a consequence of the recession or just the failures of Alan Kelly and the last government misses the point. This crisis has been accumulating for three decades. Since Jacqueline. I, particularly since that period in the 1980s, for example, yeah. where the 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 five, smart if, as if you, economists thought if you, if you that fair economics would work. But also, if you remember the 5,000 punt grant that was given to people who were council yeah. tenants to leave their estates and yeah. buy private homes, what happened there was during the 70s. The state was building an average 7,000 council houses a year and then in the early 80s it just stopped and it dropped down to 500 or 600 a year. Even at the height of the Celtic Tiger, 2000 to 2007, where the state built 450,000 houses, it was still only able to provide about 45,000 council houses. So what you need is this. We need at least 200,000 social houses in stock okay. in the state. We have 140, so we need at least another 60. Right. And that's okay. why we've made that recommendation. Okay, well, I, uh, congratulations. I, I think you've, in, in your embodiment of the report, I, I don't like reports. Uh, I, and I think that this is something that could really work and importantly brings home to people what could be done. But what's key is this. Alan Kelly, the new minister, who has said we are in a crisis. Things need to be done differently. Simon Coveney. Simon Coveney, apologies. Uh, it's been a long day again. Yeah. Uh, and who said that he's willing to take ideas on board, including the ideas of the committee. He's going to produce an action plan on housing in August. He needs, at a minimum, to bind in our 23 priority recommendations and give serious consideration right. to the others. But and if he does, things will start to change. All right, but in August, there'll be another 200 families maybe homeless. And, all right. and, and there are interventions he can take between now and then, without doubt. All right. But the crucial point is this. The ball is now in his court. Yeah, you know I don't vote for you. Um, uh, But... There's there's always time to learn. Are you going to fix the bin charge scandal or not? Uh, Well, first of all, 
uh, there's a very simple way uh, of preventing the price gouging that's going on, which is for the minister, at the stroke of a pen, to withdraw the regulation he introduced or his predecessor introduced in January that caused this mess. Importantly, there is a procedure which Sinn Féin uh, is committed to using on Wednesday in the Shannad, where by a majority vote in the Shannad, we can do it. He has until Wednesday to sign that new ministerial order, and if he doesn't, we'll force a vote, and that vote will be legally binding and will force that uh, stand statutory instrument from January right. to be wiped off the slate and stop these companies okay. gouging in their tracks. Uh, and they are gouging. They are gouging, it's no doubt about it. All right, OK. Uh, there you have it. I think an extraordinary report, uh, and it's really good. Most eloquently put, I have to say, I'm with Mo here. He can't really be from Chauvet. <laughs> That's the best compliment you've ever been paid. And uh, Deputy Owner Bridge, event spokesperson for housing.